Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the Leeward campus and happy Easter. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And we're really glad you're here. I'm Tom Nelson. And especially if you're visiting from out of town, family, friends, I'm impressed you're up this early. So uh, good to have you here this morning. It's often said there are two types of people in the world. You know, we love that kind of thing. There are those who see the world uh, as a glass half full. And there are also those uh, of us who see the world as sort of half empty. I love this in a little thought from despair.com. This glass is now half empty. Some of you can relate to that. But some of us also have another category which really best describes us. It's not just that we see the world half full or half empty. We actually ask the question, is there a glass? Uh, those are the skeptics of the world. The optimists, the pessimists, and the skeptics. And the reason I share that this morning is that I'm one of them. Uh, My life journey has uh, been paved with big potholes of doubt. Now, I came to faith in Jesus Christ as a young boy, uh, and I had a very authentic conversion to Jesus Christ. But that didn't mean that my doubts suddenly faded away. Now, I don't know, you know, how that makes you feel (laughs) this morning on an Easter service, It may surprise you that pastors have doubts too. And some of you may be thinking that's a bit, makes me feel a bit uneasy. I mean, you traffic in faith. You're all about faith. You're calling your vocation. You are immersed in faith. Let me just say, I am all in this faith deal. But that doesn't mean that I do not have doubts. One of the unvarnished truths about clergy types is they have doubts too. This was uh, spread to the world not too long ago when Mother Teresa of Calcutta died. And maybe you saw the articles all across the web and all across the world that highlighted Mother Teresa's life, but yes, her doubts. In fact, against her wishes, after she died, her letters and journals were published. And in a letter to a friend, Mother Teresa's doubts were published for everyone to see. One of the ones that grabbed me the most was this one here. And this is what she says to a friend. She says, as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. Where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. Now, we may expect this kind of statement from an outspoken atheist like Richard Dawkins of Oxford. But Mother Teresa? The one who devoted herself to God, to the poorest of poor of Calcutta? Really? Well, let me just say, I'm not Mother Teresa. You probably know that. Nor do I claim to be, but I have my doubts too. There are many doubts in my life. When I see the mysterious and murkiness of sin and wrong motives in my heart, I ask the question in those quiet moments of desperation, Tom, where is your faith? And when the silence of God greets me, I too look and do not see. I listen and do not hear.
And when I seek to comfort a family as a clergy member, as a friend, a grieving family who has lost a loved one, and when I seek to comfort a parent who is facing the unexplainable suffering of their child, doubt often greets me. And there are times in a hospital room or moments of prayer where doubt even torments me. This is my life. I am no stranger to doubt. And I don't think I'm alone. How about you? I mean, maybe you're here this morning. I don't think at an 8 o'clock service you were probably drugged here. (laughs) But maybe you are skeptical of the Christian faith. Maybe you're here because it's Easter. It's a good thing to be here. We're glad you're here. But maybe you're really skeptical, honestly, about this Christian faith deal of having coherence or authenticity or believability or plausibility. And maybe you're here this morning because it's Easter and you say you're a Christian, but your faith is kind of hanging on a thin thread. Because doubt is deeply embedded in your journey. And maybe you say, Tom, I'm not doubting this morning. You know, it's Easter. (laughs) But let me suggest to you that just around the corner perhaps is an intellectual struggle, a personal loss, a big mountain to climb, the silence of God, unanswered prayer, and doubt is going to greet you like you've never felt before. It may just be around the corner. So wherever you are this morning... I want to tell you, as I have told myself this week in my study and on my knees, that the Easter story is where you need to be, where I need to be. Because when we revisit the Easter story, it helps us address one of the most important questions of our life. And that question is this. Is doubt an enemy of faith? We often think of faith and doubt as sort of this tug of war between two opposing realities. But let me suggest perhaps another idea, at least in my own experience. And that is that doubt is not often just a tug of war. It is an ongoing exercise of strength resistance, much like an exercise workout. And I'd like us this morning, in maybe a fresh way, to revisit the Easter story through the lens of the writer Matthew. If you have your Bible open or with you, turn to Matthew chapter 28. As we explore the Easter story this morning, I'm really excited to do this with you. And I want to encourage you not only to question your faith in an appropriate way, but to question your doubts. Because we often question our faith and we seldom question our doubts. And will you do both of those with me this morning? How I'd like to approach this text is I would like to have us explore two truth claims and then press in a bit to three responses I see in the first Easter story. First, the two truth claims. First, we see in Matthew 28 that Jesus is the resurrected king. And what I want to say is that the very heartbeat of the Easter story is this bold assertion. That after having been crucified, dead, and buried for three days in time, space, and history, Jesus of Nazareth rose bodily from the dead in space and time. This is what the gospel writer Matthew declares. And he does it in a brilliant way from a literary perspective because 
he places these words, these truth claims, in verse 6, if you have your Bible open, in the angelic messenger to the women who have gathered at the tomb. Now notice verse 6. It says, the angel said, he is not here for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Now, we need to understand, it is no less startling to the women in the first century, that someone really dead, you know, three days dead, came back to life. That's a more startling in the first century as it is for us in the 21st. One thing we can bank on, apart from taxes and other things, is that really dead people stay dead. That is no different in the first century than in the 21st. And notice how Matthew makes this little phrase that we often scoot over, He is risen as he said. Do you see that? This small phrase is hugely important in the Easter story. Because it reminds us that Jesus predicted his resurrection from the dead. And it points us to the backdrop story of the Bible, which points us to Jesus, which points us to his resurrection. Now, that's a lot to say, but what does it mean? The Easter story is set in a broader story. A bigger good news story of the Bible. It's a story of a perfect world that God created. A world that was broken in sin. But not abandoned by God. God decided in his grace and mercy to restore his broken world. His sinful people. This ravaged planet. And so from the Old Testament on we see God building a plan of restoration, and he chooses a people, not because they're so great, but because he loves them. He calls them the covenant people. He promises that through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed, and the world would be restored one day. And when we look back, we see how Matthew connects the story. When we look back to the story, we see that King David, in the Old Testament, is given this promise in 2 Samuel 7, that through his lineage... A king would come to earth that would reign forever. Notice the sense, forever in 2 Samuel 7. His throne would be established forever. That means eternal. This was a different kind of king. Now, when we open up the Gospel of Matthew, you will notice that it is bookended with this idea. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew introduces his good news story, introducing us that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised fulfillment. He is the son of David in lineage and prophecy. So Matthew sets his gospel story in the Old Testament story that Jesus is the son of David. From verse 1 all the way till the end, in chapter 28, Matthew presents to us that Jesus is the king of kings. His rule and reign will last for all eternity. It is an eternal idea. With ultimate authority. That Jesus is the resurrected king. So if we understand the integrity of Matthew. In his literary structure and style. And where he is taking his gospel. We understand it is embedded in this promise to David. That this king would come. And would reign forever. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Here in Matthew 28. Is the final validation of his true messianic. Or prophetic identity. And his unrivaled majesty. So in this first century Easter story, Jesus is presented as the king of kings, the resurrected king, but he is also the ruling king. And they are connected. Because Matthew understands through his whole gospel this logical tethering. And that is that only a king who conquers death is the one who rules all. 
See, as we come to this Easter story, we understand that it is the literary so what of Matthew's story. This is where the whole gospel, 28 chapters, takes us to this climactic point. And it is in verses 18 through 20. If you have your Bible open, look at this text with me. And Jesus came and said to them, Notice, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of literally time. So Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus, as the resurrected king, is the ruling king of all. Now, many who have been to church, or if you've read the Bible, you know that this text is often described as the Great Commission. The purpose papers of the church. The church's mission. But what we must not miss is that the Great Commission is tethered. It is founded on the great truth claim of Jesus himself. That Christ's great truth claim fuels this mission to the world. And notice where the truth claim rests. Everything pivots. The whole gospel pivots on this. It is this little phrase, all authority. What is Jesus saying, the resurrected Jesus, that ends the gospel? He is saying that he rules over all reality. That he is the resurrected king. He is the ruling king. Abraham Kuyper, who is a brilliant mind of the 19th century, he was actually the prime minister of the the Dutch state. He said this of Jesus, and I think he captures where the gospel Matthew writer takes us on this Easter morning. He says this of Jesus, there is not one square inch of the universe where Jesus does not look and cry out and says, this belongs to me, this is mine. We need to grasp where Matthew takes us as he gaze, as we gaze in the empty tomb. The end of Matthew's words are not that Jesus is some just nice guy. Not that he's just some great moral teacher or great miracle worker. See, C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford Don, who was an atheist for most of his life, he encountered the claims of Christ and became a Christian. And he said, if we understand what Jesus is saying, what the gospel writer is saying, we can't dismiss Jesus as just a good moral teacher. He is either the biggest liar He's a lunatic beyond lunatics, or he is Lord God of the universe. This is where Matthew takes us. The resurrection is the exclamation point. Jesus is the ruling king. He is restoring all of creation. He's ushering in a brand new order to the world. And he writes as a wonderful theologian. And he captures, I think, so beautifully what the Easter story is saying. He says, the claim advanced in Christianity is of the magnitude. This is the magnitude. That Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility. Not simply a new ethic or even a new way of salvation. But a brand new creation. Easter morning is powerful in its implications. N.T. Wright is grasping what Matthew is saying. That all of the world one day will be the holy of holies where Christ's glory will dwell in the new heavens and new earth. Easter is a big deal for you and me 
and for the whole cosmos. Saul of Tarsus, better known as the Apostle Paul, maybe you know the story, understood this. He even persecuted Christians. He didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead until Jesus' resurrection power appeared to him and knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus. Saul, who becomes Paul, the Apostle Paul, encountered the risen Christ, and he knew that changed everything for him and for the world. Paul understood that the restoration of the broken world of Genesis 3 was now being launched. The true hope had been reborn, that God's kingdom reigned through this resurrected and ruling Jesus was on the march, unstoppable. And he writes to the Colossian believers who must have had little, you know, goosebumps on their neck as they read this. Who is this Jesus? What does the empty tomb say to us and to the world? Paul says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And then in verse 20 he says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace or shalom or wholeness or restoration by the blood of the cross. See, the Easter story is more than just chocolates, eggs, and bunnies. I kind of like all three of those things. But the Easter story is at the very heart of the greatest story ever told. The Easter story brings with it, it confronts you and me and a broken, lost world with two massive truth claims. And that is that Jesus is the resurrected king. And he is the ruling king of all. And he's ushering in his kingdom reign. And he's bringing restoration to a broken world. The empty tomb says Jesus is Lord of all. Creator, redeemer. He has absolute authority over all, including your life and mine. So how do we respond to the empty tomb this morning? I find it amazing that the gospel writer Matthew gives us three snapshots of how the first century people responded to these massive truth claims. And I'd like to unpack that just a bit. First, what you notice is willful disbelief. Today or later on today, look at verses 11 through 15 a bit, and you will see how the guards and the religious leaders, the guards encountered the divine power on, on that Easter morning, and they have no excuse but they are bought out to lie. The religious leaders reject the truth. They are unwilling to deal with the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. The most pagan, right, the Roman guards, and the religious leaders, it doesn't matter if you're pagan or religious, you can have willful disbelief. Now, doubt can lead to a strong faith. But doubt can be an enemy of faith when it leads to willful disbelief. Anchored in our well-fortified prejudices, our moral commitments, and our intellectual biases. I have to tell you that one of the best books I've read this year, the most powerful books I've read this year, is written by an English professor who was tenured at Syracuse University. Her name is Dr. Rosari Butterfield. And she describes in her story her conversion to Jesus Christ. She was an avowed skeptic 
thinking that Christians, Christian faith, were for the emotional weak and the intellectually deficient. And she ridiculed them. Then, for a research project, she had to read the Bible carefully as a literary scholar. Oh, my. And she encountered the resurrected Christ. And this is how she describes her conversion moment. You ready? She said, that night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me. She said, I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive to me. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And then she said, I asked him to take it all. Because she understood who Jesus is. From willful disbelief to belief. Now maybe some of you this morning are where Rosaria is. Maybe not quite that strong of a skeptic, but your heels are dug in a bit. You conveniently convince yourself that the Christian faith is for sort of intellectual lightweights or emotional weak people. But I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, to move from closed-minded disbelief to an open-minded willingness to consider who Jesus is. Are you honest? Are you willing to consider faith? And if not, what are you afraid of? Maybe your prayer this morning is an honest prayer. I think God hears these. God, if you are real, if Jesus is who you claimed, if you are who you claim to be, then show me. And one of the best ways I think you can begin to really honestly seek is to look at the Bible and read it carefully. This year as a congregation, we are all going through the Bible together. Not reading every verse, but we're walking through. It's called Open Here. And you can go to our website and follow along and join us. And honestly look at what the Bible says and who Jesus is. Will you be honest this morning? Or will you be like the guards and religious leaders? I don't care how unreligious or religious you are. Willful disbelief hunkers down in both worldviews. But notice the second Response. I call it hesitating belief. Look at verses 16 through 17. Notice, this is astonishing to me. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But notice this phrase. But some doubted. When you read that, you've just got to be, you've got to be kidding me. They not only encountered the resurrected Christ, they'd been with Jesus for three years, every waking moment. Now, maybe there were some other so-called disciples, but the text immediately focused on the leaven. And I want you to notice this little word doubt. It's only used twice in all of the New Testament. Twice. The original Greek word. It's only used by Matthew the other time, and it's when Peter, you remember the story, if you've read the New Testament, Peter's walking on the water. (gasps) It's a pretty big deal, faith. And, and he starts to question things. He starts to hesitate. That's the idea. And he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out his hand, right, to grab him. And says to him, why did you doubt? Same word. See, hesitating faith is the kind, like, think of this. I, mean, I hate red lights, but I hate yellow lights. Because when you come to an intersection, what do you do? You know, a yellow light, you're like, 
Should I floor it? <laughs> right? Or should I slam on my brakes? And if you have kids in the car or something else, you're like, what do I do? You know, either way, I just, you know, ruin someone's neck. <laughs> this is the picture of this Greek word. It is one sense of going forward, one sense of slamming on the brakes. It's being caught in the intersection between faith and doubt. It is a hesitation between two forces. Do you find it amazing that the 11 disciples, some of them, are caught in the intersection after the resurrection of Jesus? They've been with him for three years. They're visibly seeing him, and they are doubting. Is that amazing? We often miss that. Pastor writer John Ortberg says this. He says, the Christian faith is bipolar. He says, disciples live their lives between worship and doubt, trusting and questioning, hoping and worrying. I think he's right. These are disciples. These are followers of Jesus who are caught between wanting to trust God and... uh, See, hesitating faith is not willful disbelief. It is fragile belief. And fragile belief needs to be strengthened. It needs to come back to the Easter story, the empty tomb, every day, not just on Easter. A member of our congregation is going through an amazing amount of loss in her family. And she said this the other day, and it was exactly what I feel often. She says, I have so many doubts right now, I don't even know if I have faith anymore. You ever been there? You may be here this morning there. So will you make room to move from shaky faith to a more confident? Will you make room for a greater mystery and greater trust? Parents, I would encourage you, if you're a parent here or will be a parent or even a grandparent, don't panic when your children or grandchildren begin to doubt their faith. And students, if you're here this morning and you have doubts, you are normal. First of all, doubt itself doesn't have to be sin. And what I want to encourage you is with your doubts, what do you do with them? Talk to others who are further down in their journey of faith and help them share with them. Have them help you navigate this reality. Doubt does not have to be an enemy of faith. It can be a path to greater faith, deeper faith, more authentic faith. So this morning, will you remember to retether your life to the one whom you can be confident in? Will you tether your life to the gospel? That Jesus has come, he has shed his atoning blood for your sin and mine. That Jesus has paid it all. All. And that repenting of your sin and placing your faith in the finished work of the cross, your faith is secure in him because of who he is and what he's done, not because of what you feel. Will you tether your life to the cross and to the empty tomb this morning and find confidence even in the midst of doubt storms? You can have that confidence. Perhaps you realize you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning. 
And maybe your prayer this morning is for the first time to realize Jesus' death and resurrection requires a humble response. Maybe if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you simply pray a prayer like this, crucified and risen Lord, I trust what you had done for me on the cross. And in repentance and faith, I place my faith in you. Make me this new creation in Christ. And if you're sure you're already a Christian, maybe in your fragile faith, you say, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Maybe that's your response this morning. Lastly, there's a third response that is encouraging as well, and that's confident belief. Notice verse 17, they worship him. This is all in belief. This is recognizing the lordship of Christ to rule over your life and mine. Are you willing this morning? You may say you're a Christian, and as you look in the empty tomb, is Jesus Lord of your life? That means every nook and cranny you're aware of. See, we all want to be in control of our life. We're all control freaks. That's part of being a fall, part of the fall. But the resurrection message calls all of us to recognize the lordship of Christ. What area of your life do you need to address this morning where Jesus is not Lord? Confident faith is an all-in faith. Maybe your prayer this morning is, Lord, take control of this area of my life. You know what it is. Holy Spirit's communicating that to you. And use me in whatever way you desire to accomplish your gospel mission. So is doubt an enemy of faith? I think the Easter morning message gives a yes-no answer. Honest doubt can be a greater path to faith, but willful disbelief is a dead-end street. As you look in the empty tomb this morning, where are you? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we often gloss over the Easter story and we miss the significance of your truth claims. Lord, whether we have an identification with deep skepticism, of willful disbelief, whether our faith is fragile in a hesitating belief, move us closer to the cross and to the empty tomb. And may we have a confident faith as we embrace the gospel in a fresh way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.